Well, now, take your Bible and grab your sermon outline and turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a sermon outline, we will get you one. At last, after 110 sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, at last we come to that moment that Jesus prophesied time after time, the very death of Christ recorded for us. Matthew writes, Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. He put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So far then, the reading of God's Word. When I was a boy, I remember being down outside of Pittsburgh in Black Ridge Park with a group of my friends. And on this day, there was a man, an old man, sitting on a bench. And I still remember, he stunk. His clothes were tattered. He was clearly homeless. He was mumbling to himself. He seemed utterly alone, abandoned, and we left him alone, but as we were walking, one of the older kids used a word I had never heard before. He said, look at that derelict. What is a derelict? A derelict is somebody who is alone, abandoned at a loss for how to do life. The commentary of my friend was derogatory, but the guy was pathetic. Now, 
For hundreds of years, the theologians have spoken of this moment when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They have called this the cry of dereliction. And I never liked hearing that word applied to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the lover of my soul. Jesus is the one who has the fruit of the Spirit in perfection. This is the one who is my faithful, faithful friend. So to call him a derelict created a kind of dissonance and static in my head. I, I just didn't like it applied to Jesus, and yet... It is actually an accurate term because now as for three hours darkness covers the land and is over Jesus and as he hangs with nails in his hands and nails in his feet suffocating there on the cross alone and abandoned I want you first this is point one I want you first simply to hear the cry of dereliction of Jesus in the darkness. For what Matthew does, and he is an extraordinary writer, what Matthew does is he now for a few brief moments removes everyone else from the stage. And the focus is on Christ alone. And as we understand what is happening, it is horrible and yet it is wonderful. we will see the love of Jesus Christ sacrificing Himself for us. We will see the love of God the Father giving up His Son for you and for me. Matthew is telling us that from the, the sixth hour, which is noon, to the ninth hour, there's a darkness that covers the land, and that that ninth hour is about the time of the evening sacrifice when Christ makes his last cry and gives up his breath. But there is darkness that covers the land. Darkness. And if you know the prophets of old, you know that on those occasions when they announced judgment is coming, doom will follow the lot of those in rebellion against God. When judgment is coming, when the day of the Lord is at hand, they announce there will be darkness. The prophet Amos, some of you know, he is a, a powerful prophet who is so broken by the, e the evil and the wickedness of the world around him. He writes in Amos chapter 8 verse 9, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so this is a moment of judgment. And out of the darkness comes this cry from the lips of Jesus, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is in Aramaic, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And can you imagine, here, Jesus experiences the abandonment of God the Father from himself. As they have had years and years of sweet, sweet communion, 
it's gone. Can you imagine the stress? Put your, have you ever been stressed out? I know you have. You've never been stressed. Can you imagine the stress on Jesus now? The agony of being alone and abandoned. Can you imagine? Yes, the physical pain, terrible, his nails in his hands, nails in his feet, suffocating, gasping for breath on the cross. Yes, that is all terrible. But now the Father turns his face away. And you have this unmitigated, this relentless sin that is being placed upon him. My sin, your sin, being imputed, falling upon Jesus. And we are told that this is not just God being mean to Jesus. You know, atheists today, sometimes they say, oh, God was an abuser. Listen, this is, that, is a, that is a horrible accusation against God. If I hear people say that, and I have, I correct them, excuse me. Do not call God the Father an abuser. God is showing His love for us in dealing with our sins by Himself giving up His Son. And we read in the explanation of what's going on in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. Ah, what is happening? There is an offering for guilt being made here, and Paul describes in the 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, the epistles explain the Gospels. And he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What a sentence. For our sake he made him on the cross to be sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us as our representative for our benefit. Now this leads to point number two because what happens then is that Jesus receives the wages of sin. And some of you memorize that Bible verse, right? For the wages of sin is death, right? And Jesus actually dies. Verse 50 tells us. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The one who never earned the wages of sin receives the wages of sin, the payment, which is death. Now, we're on a bit of a theological edge today. And I want to make something very clear. This is a time to say this. It was the human nature of the God-man who died. Sometimes well-meaning Christians who want to affirm the deity of Jesus will say something like this. They will say, God died for us on the cross. And what they want to do is they want to honor the deity of Jesus, which is a good thing to do, but it is a mistake to say that God died because you do need to know that God himself is immutable. God cannot die. He is divine. And so it is the human nature of Christ. That does not make it any less significant, but it is the human nature of Christ now that dies. His spirit, his soul does not die. 
His deity, does, his deity does not die. That being said, I hope that's clear. The New Testament astounds us with the God-given interpretation of what is going on here. Again, Romans 5, verse 8. Do you know this verse? But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the defining moment of the great exchange. I am a sinner, and my sin is laid upon Him. He who knew no sin became sin. And in His obedience, His righteousness is credited to your account and my account. It is time to pay. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but how does that verse end? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, this moment of death becomes the moment of new life for you and for me. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. That's what we just sang. Here in the death of Christ, I live because I don't have to die. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 finishes the end of that verse. Yes, he who knew no sin became sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Okay, you know in the book that I gave those college students this morning, uh, Dane Ortland writes this. He says, Jesus Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or to wake up sleepy people or to advise confused people or educate ignorant people or to uh, entertain bored people or uh, none of that. Jesus Christ came to save guilty sinners from the wrath of God. And while he'll do all those other things, this was his mission. And this is his moment to do that. He is our substitute. He takes the pain. How does that make you feel? How do you feel knowing this? Are these just words to you? I know. My words are inadequate. Can you see him there on the cross? Suffering, alone, derelict, abandoned, cursed, and now repugnant to God. Yes. He will not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not night now. He doesn't hear it. He will not hear the words that he needs to hear. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He does not hear it. Silence! I'm so grateful. Aren't you grateful? We thank you, our Father. We thank you, God the Son, for the cross. And then if you are thankful, if he melts your heart in gratitude, do you also learn how to take your sins to the cross? Because if you're like me, you experience the conviction of sin and you feel guilty over your sins. You know that they have hurt someone else, that they have offended God, they've hurt someone else. What do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my, my, my anguish over what I've done? 
we go to the cross. We take our sins there, and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I'm going to leave them there in this ugly pattern. I want you to change my heart. And where I am stingy, would you show me your generosity that I may be generous? And where I speak words that hurt somebody else, could I say no more of that? Teach me how, Lord, to bless other people with my words, to encourage and build up other people. Where I am arrogant, and when I am proud, and you show me my pride, could I see you hanging on the cross and take my pride to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for being gentle and lowly, for humbling yourself for me. Oh, fill me with your humility and get up and walk away changed. That is the role of the cross in our lives. Verse 50. Verse 50, and he yielded up his spirit, and it's over. Or is it? Is it over? What happened when he yielded up his spirit? Matthew continues to write in verse 51, and behold, suddenly, it's like it's Suddenly, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many immediately. Right after the cursed death of Jesus. The world is changed forever. Changed forever. This curtain, do you know about the curtain? This is not some sheer fabric. This is the curtain that bars entrance into the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. Thick, one inch thick, high, maybe 13, 14 feet high, maybe higher. And on that moment, that curtain which forbids anyone to come into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, and they put bells on his ankles to hear if he is still alive. And that curtain is torn in two. What does this mean? It means now that Jesus Christ has led into not just the earthly temple, we read it in the book of Hebrews, but into the heavenly temple. It is now open to Jesus and to all his people. Do you need a priest to pray for you anymore? You don't. Do you need a pastor to pray for you? Oh, your pastors are happy to pray for you. Please fill out the prayer request cards. We love to pray for you. But you, do you need me to get you access into heaven? No more. Never again. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. You have direct access into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then these rocks are split. There's an earthquake that takes place, and these bodies rise up uh, from the dead. 
And this is, this is fascinating. It's staggering. It's only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And he doesn't give much explanation. And so I wonder, I wonder. Uh, he's, he's telling us that appear, they appear after the resurrection. Were they in the tomb for three days? And we, don't, we, we, we don't know. Did they rise up like Enoch of old and ascend into heaven? Or were they more like Lazarus, who was raised after four days stinking in the tomb? And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, that I may prove to the world that I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I'm not sure... But what I am sure of is that this is another one of those historical parables that we've learned. This is an event that happened in history. Certain lives were raised from the dead, and it tells us that Jesus, by his death, gives us eternal life. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Isaiah is looking forward to the day of the Lord, and he says... Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And so I assume that those people, as they came out of the tomb, probably had a, went to the choir practice with Lazarus to sing for joy in knowing Jesus Christ. So Jesus yields up his spirit now. That's when he died. But where did his spirit go? And when he went there, what happened there? Some of you say, Pastor John, you told us earlier in the service when we studied the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. But what does that mean? For those of you just watching the sermon online, we recited the Apostles' Creed together with that line, after his death, he descended into hell. Well, I don't think it's that he went to purgatory to get cleansed. I don't think he went to limbo. I think those are uh, doctrines held in some parts of the church that are not very helpful. They are not accurate. And yet, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because Jesus is not yet raised from the dead. The writers of the larger catechism, bear with me here, the writers of the larger catechism said he did continue under the pain of death for a time. So when we say he uh, descended into hell, you have to understand the use of the English word hell. It's been around for many years. Some people use it as a curse word. They don't really know what they're saying if they say go to hell. For some people, they mean go to the lake of fire. And there is a fiery furnace. There is a place where the damned will end up. And it's, Jesus uses the word Gehenna, or the lake of fire, to describe that. But that's not where Jesus went. The English word hell, uh, hundreds of years ago, referred to the place of the dead. And the Greek word Hades, which is also a word that Jesus used for the place of the dead, is used to translate the Old Testament word Sheol. In the Old Testament, when it's re, uh, translated into Greek, they use Hades. And in the Latin, Vulgate, it's used the word inferna. It's referring to that place 
where the dead go before the resurrection in that period of time. Are you with me? And then Jesus teaches us in Luke 16 something very interesting in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Stay with me here. This is all happening right now. In that parable, you have the, the rich man who goes to a place in Hades, but a, it's an unhappy place of torment, and it is cut off, utterly cut off from another place where a different Lazarus goes, and he's in the bosom of Abraham. It is a quasi-paradise. It is the place where the elect go to await the resurrection from the dead. And there's a chasm between them. Where did Jesus go? Well, he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think he went to that section of Hades there as Christ triumphant goes there where the, uh, this guy off the cross, you know, next to him, he, he follows him along like a puppy does. I don't know. And he goes there and the Old Testament saints the Old Testament saints who have been waiting for this day, they see the victory of Christ who announced from the cross, it is finished. And you know what Jesus does there? He actually tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle has this vision of the glorified Christ. I saw one like a son of man. Remember his face shines like the sun in all its brilliance. And he says in verse 17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, listen, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. Yeah, he yielded his spirit. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Right, the cross. I died. The resurrection. I rose. And then this phrase that we really don't touch. We preachers don't touch a lot. What is, how does the verse end? And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What did he do when he yielded up his spirit and continued under the power of death for a time? Oh, brothers and sisters, Lee Irons in his comment on this passage, he says, Christ has yet to descend to the bottom of the parabola on his mission. What is this? You remember geometry? Anybody remember geometry when you had to diagram a parabola? He goes down, 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 down. The cross was not the bottom. Our Savior not only died, but He tasted death and the power of death and continued under it, and He went down to the bottom, to the farthest place from heaven itself. And there He commandeered the keys of death and Hades. And at His resurrection, He brought the keys with Him. Do you think He showed them to John that day? I hold the keys of death and Hades for you and for me. The earth changed. Hades changed on that day. Christ took the keys. 
And so now, as this passage comes to a close, what does Matthew tell us? He tells us that people are watching. Did you catch that? He brings us back to Calvary. He brings us back to Golgotha. And we join the Roman centurion. And we join the faithful women who will be able to say, I was there when they crucified my Lord. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake that took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You know what I think? I think we just saw a conversion. I think we just saw the first conversion after the death of Jesus. Was this centurion one who helped nail the nails into the hands of Jesus? Maybe. Was he one who helped raise the cross up onto its place and saw Christ heave desperate breaths to, there in those last hours of his life? We don't know. But what we do know is he watched. And now as Christ yields his spirit, as he hears the words, it is finished, as he sees the darkness and then he learns of the curtain torn in half, he sees the tombs, uh, the, the rocks crack, the earthquake around him. He is in the presence of holiness. And maybe there is someone listening today, here in this room. Maybe there is someone watching online. And suddenly this makes sense to you. I hope this is you. I hope it makes sense to you that God would reconcile us to himself by the sacrifice of his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And you're actually finding your proud heart is melting. And you're finding that your skepticism and your objections really rise out of your proud heart that does not want to be ruled by the Lord. And suddenly you're saying, oh, but now I see the cross is the safe place to come. The cross is the safe place for me to come. Maybe you, like the Roman centurion, will say, oh, now I see. This is the Son of God bleeding and dying for me. If so, this is a good day for you. A humbling day, but a good day for you. And I hope you will receive him. You will marvel at who he is and what he's done for you. And then we see the women on the hill far away. Don't you love these women? Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These women who were faithful to him, they could do nothing to help him. But for three years, they have been at his side, his disciples. And many of you, for years and years, have been at his side, and you have been his disciple. 
I don't know. But I can hear those women and the Roman centurion in the years to come singing the song we are about to sing. I could hear them singing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? I was there. He died for me. And I am grateful. Let's pray, shall we? God, our Father, you have brought us not only to this place in this room together, and we are so glad to be together, but you have assembled us online, and millions of people have read this account inscribed in the Gospel of Matthew, and eyes have been opened like the centurions. And what can we do but adore and worship our Lord Jesus Christ? the Son of God. We lay down our pride, our self-governance, and we pray that you will come into our hearts, some for the first time, others in a fresh and new way, and, oh, Lord, in the quietness now of this place, can we say we saw it, we understand it, we understand what you have done, you were made sin to receive God's wrath in my place. And only you could do it because you are the Son of God. We worship you and we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.